All right, as we have been, uh, we are in the book of 1 Corinthians. If you want to open there, if you brought a Bible with you, we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, just starting to seep into this part of 1 Corinthians where the Corinthians are being challenged on their worship services. Uh, hey, I want to tell you a story. Uh, a few, uh, a f- about a, y- eh, a little bit less than a year ago now, um, some really close friends of ours gave us this generous gift. Uh, they gave us this gift uh, to go eat at this restaurant called uh, Alinea in Chicago. Uh, if you don't know about Alinea, uh, it's because you're not a food nerd, and you should be thankful for that because you are happier um, for not coveting um, what can happen at a place like this. But Alinea is one of the uh, top three restaurants in the entire world, um, has been uh, the top restaurant in the world in a lot of different ways. Um, and Alinea is a space where, where, where a meal is an experience in every single way, uh, a space where the food is focused on for sure, uh, but also the, the music, the lights, the ambiance, the service. Uh, it's a place where where really dining is, is, is something that's just more than just eating food. It's an experience to be taken hold of. It's, it's almost like a, a theater-type event to take part in. And this meal was just mind-blowing to Sarah and I. And I was thinking about um, really throughout like our relationships and our lives and just even in our culture, how important like ceremonial, uh, special meals are. That there's just something about like uh, the way that it feels on Thanksgiving, right? When you sit down uh, to share a meal with one another. Uh, that Christmas Eve meal that my family does every single year that we, we big, make this just big feast for just our little small family to celebrate the coming of Jesus uh, together on that holiday. The, the meals are crucial, even in our everyday lives. Meals kind of mark our day. We start with breakfast, we move towards noon, and we're halfway through, and we get to have a sandwich. Uh, and we move to the end of the day, and we have dinner where, where many times a family will gather together. Meals are, are central and important to our lives and to our culture. And this was no different in Corinth, that meals were at the heart of their rhythms. And we've seen this in Corinthians uh, as they've been asking these questions about, hey, hey food sacrificed to idols, and can I go to these temples and eat with other people? Um, but meals have not just been central um, for the past uh, 10 years or 100 years or 1,000 years, but really since the beginning of time. And so it's fitting that in the rhythm and, and the system of a church that, that a meal stands at some of the center uh, of what we do as a church. And that meal um, is the communion meal or the Lord's Supper. Um, now Paul is going to, in this passage, speak into the way that the Corinthians were celebrating, were partaking in communion as a church. And we're going to see uh, that just like issues with authority last week, just like issues with spiritual gifts and the way that they were displaying some of those in a few weeks, uh, things were not going well in Corinth when it came to this stuff. Things were going pretty poorly. So if you want to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, flip to verse 17, that is where we will get started with a zinger right off the top from Paul. Are you excited? I am. He says this, but the following instructions, I do not commend you. Uh, Literally in the NIV, it's translated, I have no praise for you, right? Like, ouch, it was a burn. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worst. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuinely among you may 
be recognized. He says, I have no praise for you. And in the following instructions, he says, I have no condemnation for you. What Paul is saying is here is when I look at your church service, when I look at your worship gathering, when I look at your uh, agape, your love feast, your celebration of the Lord's Supper, you're doing terrible, okay? Right? You ever have somebody speak to you like that? You're like, uh... Uh, is there uh, anything on my performance review that we could look at as a positive? They're like, not really. Uh, here's a performance improvement plan. That just means HR says I can't fire you for four weeks, but uh, we're going to get there, right? He says, I have no commendation for you. Now, now, Paul's been gracious to them in a lot of things. As he's spoken into a lot of different areas of their lives. He's given them grace. He's given them some pause, some peace, saying, hey, even though you've done this, I still, I, I still uh, I, I praise you for these things. But in this, he says, I, I don't commend you at all. He says, the way that you are practicing things, the way that you come together is ridiculous. He says, I've heard that there's divisions in your gatherings. And he says, it doesn't really surprise me that much, right? This was a church wrought with divisions, divisions over which leader they were following, divisions over uh, uh, which uh, a social class they were a part of. Even some racial divisions were evident in the people in Corinth. And he says, it doesn't surprise me at all that there are divisions in your gathering because there must be factions in you that this is going on, that some of you are being recognized in different ways. Paul says, in the way that they were gathering, in their worship gathering, he had no praise for them. The worship gathering is intended to be a thing that points us to unity and oneness in God. Uh, now, now, when we thought about this space, and I mean, it has been a break next three or four weeks getting this space ready, and there's still things to tweak around here, but um, overall, just so thankful for how it's come together. But, but a lot of thought went into some little pieces about this space. How do we want to use lighting and colors? What do, we want to, what do we want our approach to a worship service to be? What should the elements of what we do in this space, not just in this space, but even as we've planned out our, our worship services, uh, what kind of songs should we sing? What will be our rubric for how we select those songs? Will we just sing what is popular and what is fun, or will we think more deeply about the theology of these songs? Uh, will we celebrate communion weekly or monthly or quarterly? What do we want it to feel like when people walk into this space? What kind of coffee do we want to have for people? We've thought deeply about a lot of these things, and we're not thinking deeply about these things to try and figure out how to give you the most comfortable and experiential experience. We're thinking deeply about these things to say, what can we do to ensure that this is a space where people can connect with God, worship Him, and rally around the truth of the gospel. The elements of our worship service, the way that we do things, they are informed by our culture, but they are moored in this truth that our worship service has a point and a purpose, that it is an important thing, that it is a crucial thing in our lives as believers. Now, now churches often go way too far in this, and they make the Sunday experience a worship gathering. That's really all church is, right? And that's the way I grew up with church in many ways. And I don't know if that was the fault of the church in any way, but really I saw Sunday was the point of the week where I was a Christian, and the rest of it I was just recovering till the next Sunday where I got Christianed again, right? Sunday was where I became a Christian. And so on Sunday, it was important to dress up. On Sunday, it was important to worship. On Sunday, I was excited. And then by the time I was out the door to go scream at the lions with my dad as a young boy, I'd really moved on, right? Sunday was the high point of my week as a believer. 
And so we don't want to go too far and over-magnify what happens in this service. We want to be careful that what we do in this service, that the way we use technology, that the way we use lighting and sounds and sights, that the way that we do those things, the, the, the way that we uh, focus or don't focus on who's leading worship, we want to be careful that those things don't distract from God, but we don't want to make our worship service overly important and say that the, what happens during the rest of your week when you're on mission, when you're meeting in smaller groups, uh, city groups throughout the church, that when you're with your non-believing friends as a missionary to your community, that that's not of equal importance and equally Christian to what happens here on Sunday. But we also don't want to minimize this gathering. That the uh, gathering of God's people, that the worship service as we now take it, that, that the meal of communion, that this time that we gather together is an important, intentional part of your week. And so even though I think there was some frustration on the way I perceived church as a kid, there was also something I think that was really remarkable about it, that it was really, really important to my family. Um, you know, we didn't, we didn't plan other things on Sundays. We didn't really even go out of town very often over a Sunday. My parents served really faithfully. They still serve really, really faithfully in their local church. And that was an important day to our family. That We magnified it. We thought that that was crucial to our lives. And so we want to find balance in the way that we perceive this day. And then we want to focus ourselves on this truth. That the worship gathering is supposed to point us to the unity that we find in God. It's supposed to point us to unity in our, in our theology, what we believe and think about God. It's supposed to uh, point us towards God in our thought as we uh, open the Bible and we work through passages of Scripture, as we sing quality songs which point to scriptural truths. It's supposed to point us to unity in our salvation as we think about the gospel, as we center our services, our songs, our minds around the truth of what God has done for us and how that transforms our lives and our purposes. Um, it's supposed to bring us unity around our mission, that every single one of us are called to the same thing, that it's not just um, our, our pastors or our elder candidates or our leaders around here who are called to be on mission to share the gospel, that, that every single one of you, if you are a believer in Jesus, you are on the same mission as everyone else in this world. To proclaim the good news of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. The things that we do in this service should add to that unity, should point to that God and not distract from it or we are failing. Like you can have a kick-butt light show, right? You can have an amazing, handsome worship leader, and we've got one of those, don't we? Amen, church. You can have a talented preacher, hilarious and good-looking to boot. But if they detract from the purpose of this gathering, Paul says, I have no praise for you. Paul says, I have no praise for you. I don't commend you at all. The Corinthians worship services were an absolute mess. Uh, we'll see this in the coming weeks. There was disorder. It was chaos. They were focused on the wrong things. And it played out in a central part of their gathering, which was the Lord's Supper. Pick it up in verse 20. It says, when you come together... It's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal, and one goes hungry and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or should you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So what Paul says is that as the people in Corinth gather for communion, as they gather this, he says, because of how you're handling this, you shouldn't even call it the Lord's Supper at all. 
He says, what you are doing, the way that you are gathering for this meal together, the divisions and the hatred and the social hierarchy that you are exhibiting here have absolutely negated whether or not even this thing could be called a communion with God. You have taken away, you have literally distracted from the meaning of what you are doing so much that it's pointless. So what was going on in Corinth. Well, first of all, like I said, uh, uh, meals were a central part of Corinthian culture. And so when you think about this communion meal, you need to think about it differently than the way that we've become accustomed to practicing communion um, in the local church. And I got to tell you, uh, uh, one disappointment I have for this week, I, I was really hoping uh, originally that, that we could uh, have our first service in this space last week because I knew we were going to arrive at this passage and I knew it would be too much to do. But what I wanted to do is I wanted to be able to do exactly what was happening in the early church and in Corinth around communion which is the way that they celebrated communion wasn't to just pass crackers and wine and juice and service. What it was was to have a meal, that it was to sit down. This was their, uh, their Baptist fried chicken potluck, right? This was how they gathered. It was called a, a love feast or an agape feast that when they gathered, uh, it seems like weekly to celebrate the Lord's Supper, it was a huge deal. Like, everybody brought out their best stuff. They gathered in this meal. They celebrated one another. It was a fixture. It was a reminder of who they were as a church. And so as a part of this meal, they would then celebrate the sacrifice of Jesus through the bread and through the wine to remember what he had done. It was just this big, huge thing. It's kind of an amazing, cool thing. And so what started as this really cool cultural practice to work this ceremony just as it had been instituted in the Passover by Jesus into a big feast with one another, just as it started in this way, though it started to degrade. And what it seems is that these factions, these divisions in the church uh, were likely divided amongst lines of wealth. And so what it seems like was happening in Corinth was two things. First, that they were becoming like little cliques, right? Little clicks of people that said, hey, um, you know, we're all a part of, of one church here in Corinth. We're all uh, one River City church. Uh, but these are the people I really resonate with, right? They get me. They get me. And have you ever noticed this? That the people that resonate with you the most, they probably look like you, sound like you, and bake about, about the same amount of money as you do. You ever notice that? It's not bad altogether culturally that we flock to people that are similar to us. There's really natural stuff in us that wants to find community and people that are similar. And that's not all bad. That can be really good. But what the Corinthians did is they took those natural uh, uh, attractions to other group of people that were like them. And they turned those into factions and really cliques. And so their communion meal got split. And so over here in this corner we had those uh, who made above 80K a year, right? And over here in this corner, we had the like 80 to 50 group, and then we had the 50 to 30, and then we had you college kids that make a quarter, um, and they were all in the corner, right? And those meals got divided up. And so, so this group over here in the corner that made 80K, and maybe man, there's people in the back, they made like $300,000, and so their meal was like, there's prime rib back here, right? And they had a chef come in, and it became this kind of show-off competition of, hey, look what I, look what I brought to communion meal. Now, I try and encourage this in my city group. Uh, and I'm like, hey, you should really try and show off here, right? Like, if you brought Doritos, especially Cool Ranch, you're not showing off, right? Like, division, oof, that didn't even get laughed. Some people are like, Cool Ranch is the best kind of Doritos. No, <laughs> trash, nacho cheese, all day long, okay? That's right, that's right. Leave the church, I don't care. <laughs> I hope somebody just takes that snippet when we put this online, and they're like, I don't know, I'm not, I'm not showing up there. Um, 
you see, I have this rich corner over here, and they had their meal, and their meal was lavish and fancy, and because it was their clique, they excluded the others. They said, no, you, you don't have money. You can't come to this table. They had the best wine. There were factions, divisions. There was a, a, a spirit of showing off, of saying, look how God has blessed me and what I can bring to impress this crowd of people. Not only that, it doesn't look like there were just divisions uh, kind of spatially or in what they were bringing, but it looks like there, there was even like uh, divisions in, in the scheduling of this meal. The, the, what it appears was happening from the way that this passage is constructed is that they were planning this meal, and they were planning it so early in the day that all the rich people that could get off work early, people that maybe weren't working manual jobs, that they would come and they would start this feast, right? And they would, they would start their feast and they'd be eating their full, uh, there'd be all, all the communion wine was there and ready, like, right? They had their, their bottles of wine. They're like, well, nobody else is here. I guess we'll just drink all this wine, right? Wine's not going to drink itself. And they were getting trashed at communion and then the poor people would roll and there'd be nothing left. Because they had so eaten to their fill. They, they had eaten till they were stuffed. They had drunk until they were drunk. And they had excluded those who were poor from their gathering. And that's why Paul says, I have no praise for you. Because in the local church, there is zero place for divisions of this sort. There is zero place in the local church for divisions when it comes to race, when it comes to socioeconomic status, when it comes to gender or education level or anything of that sort. Whether it be age, any division, there is no part in the local church where it is appropriate for us to be divided in our unity, in our privilege, and in our access to God based on any of those things. Now, if we're honest, there's no harder diversity to achieve than socioeconomic diversity. There's nothing harder. Now, racial diversity is hard. You know, we want to be a church where, where people look different from, from, from each other. We want to be a church where people have different backgrounds and cultures. We think that the church is a beautiful thing because nothing brings unity like the gospel. And so we can have a whole bunch of people that people look at this church and they go, man, I don't even know how those people sit next to each other, let alone worship the same God. A church where people are shocked at the diversity of how we look, of our culture, of our practices. But man, it is hard to achieve economic diversity. It's hard. We want to be a church filled with all sorts of people from all sorts of backgrounds. And so in our body, we, we have to be cautious of things that would divide our access based on any of those things. We want to be cautious of the things that we plan. Does, does every event in this church have a paywall? Like when we throw a conference, do we provide ways for people to access that material who don't have the means to? Like when you think about, like think, okay, think about this. When you think about the way that you give financially to River City Church, how do you think about it? Do you think about it like uh, buying a memorial brick at a school and you're like, I got my brick? I, I hate it when, I, I hear people do this sometimes when they, they raise money for something. They're like, hey, you know, if we split up the cost of this building evenly, if you give $80 a week, you have paid for your cup of coffee in your parking spot, right? I hate that. Because that is not the kind of giving, that is not the kind of culture that the Bible calls us to. What the Bible calls us to is that when I give, when I give generously, my goal is not to buy myself a cup of coffee, but it's to buy 100 people a cup. My goal is that my generosity wouldn't be reflective of what I'm receiving. This isn't Meyer, right? 
My goal is not that I pay my tab or I pay my own way so that I feel good about being here. My goal is that when I give financially, when I give my time and my serve, it's not so that I can like, like, well, you know, Sarah did her four weeks in River City Kids and then we have four kids and that means they can go now. No, I want you to serve when you don't have kids. I want you to have served more than you have kids. I want you to join our welcome team. I want you to give your money so that other people can come here, worship and hear the gospel who maybe can't provide for themselves in the same way. Your goal is not to give to cover your worth. And your goal is not to give in a way that, that makes you feel like you're special in some way. Not to show off, not to say, look how much I can do, but in the grace of God to be a generous person who promotes the unity of the local body in the way that they give, serve the time that they put in. We need to fight for diversity in the local church. We need to pursue it. We need to be extra conscious of the fact that we are going to be prone to not feel comfortable reaching across the aisle to people that are different from us in a multitude of ways. But we will never be a church that reflects the diversity of the kingdom of God someday unless we push hard for this, unless we put it on the top of our minds that we want to see people who are different than us, who have different experiences, who could afford different things maybe than you can, up or down. Whether they are poor financially or they are poor in spirit, we want to be a place that's open. So that's what was going on in Corinth. It was this mess of a community meal. It was this communion meal where they came together, where they completely missed the point. And that's what Paul addressed in verse 23. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup. And after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of the bread and drink of the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He says, You've completely missed the point of this thing. Now, he makes it really clear. He says, the communion that I passed along to you, the way I instructed you in the Lord's Supper, the things I taught you about this, he says, these were things that I received from the Lord. Now, now uh, commentators and Bible experts are a little bit divided on what that means, whether he means like this was passed down to me from the Lord or if Jesus actually gave him this instruction. It really doesn't matter for the application and understanding of this verse. What he's saying is that the way that I taught you about communion, the instructions that he's about to give about what this meal is and what it symbolizes, he says, these came from God. He says, this instruction for what this meal is, for how it should look, for what you're supposed to do, for where your mind should be, he says, this is from God. This isn't changeable. You can't reinterpret this. He says, communion is based on these elements. This is the bread. Because he took that bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The bread is this representation of the unity that we find in Christ because we, in our salvation, in our trust in God, we are literally knit together in the body of Jesus. This bread that we partake of when we celebrate communion together is to remind us that we are one church. We are not different things of different substance. Even though we might look different, even though we might talk different, even though we might think differently, we might have different things than each other, we all partake in the same bread because we are all a part of the same Christ. It is this unity with Jesus that provides for Jesus to be our sacrifice on the cross. That it is our unity with Jesus that when he died his death, he died your death because you became a part of who he was. 
It is this death with Jesus that provides for your resurrection in Christ, both for the new life that we experience spiritually and for the ultimate resurrection of our body someday in the future. That we are knit together in the literal body of Jesus. And so we represent this in this cracker, in this bread, which reminds us of his body. He says, remember the cup. This is in the same way Jesus took the cup. And after supper, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. On this part, this feast, the first institution of the Lord's Supper, um, as a part of a Passover meal. And in the Passover meal, there were several cups. And there was a cup at the end of that meal. And he's saying, this cup, this wine, this juice that you now drink, this fruit of the vine that you partake of, this is a reminder that you are stepping into a new covenant with God. And that that covenant, the seal of that covenant, the thing that makes that covenant uh, take place or hold or give it credence, that the seal of that covenant isn't the blood of a lamb like it was in Passover. It's the blood of Christ shed on a cross to prove out the covenant of God, the promise of grace found only in Jesus for you. It was the blood of Christ that was the, the only thing that could pay the penalty for our sin. It was his blood that was shed that covers over all of your wrongdoing. Man, when I think about the cup in communion, I think about the amazing truth that in this cup, that in this sign of the new covenant, that in the blood of Christ, my sins aren't forgiven just from yesterday. They're forgiven for tomorrow. That, that when you die and you pass on, you will have sins that you don't even know you did, right? Because you know, we don't just sin in, in omission. We don't just sin in, in things, or sorry, we don't just sin in commission. Things that we do, things that we commit, ways that we err, we sin in omission. Every time when we should give glory to God and we don't. Every time when, when we should do the right thing and yet we persist in the wrong, we sin in omission. We don't obey the command of God. And this cup reminds us that Christ has provided for all of that. This is the sign of the new covenant that God will pass over us as he passed over the Israelites because the blood of the lamb that marked them saying, these are my covenant people and save them from their death. Paul says, when you come together, when you celebrate this meal, you're supposed to celebrate it in the way that God intended it. It's supposed to remind you of his unity in his body. It's supposed to remind you of the great sacrifice that he provided for you in Jesus. He says, this communion meal, this thing that you do when you come together in this way, he says, this is supposed to be a proclamation of the gospel. Why do we celebrate communion every week here at River City? Because it's one more way to proclaim the gospel to you every single week. And that is the drum that we will beat over and over again. That's the thing that I hope you're sick of because it's the minute that you start to get sick of it that maybe it will seep into your mind that God deeply loves you and knows you intimately. This communion meal is a reminder of the fact that the Son of God took on flesh. That he came down to earth, that he lived a perfect, sinless life, and then was put to death on a cross, and that he suffered that death, that he allowed his life to be taken, that he might pay for your and my sin. Today's sin, yesterday's sin, tomorrow's sin. And that then after he died, he rose again, and in that resurrection, he offers you a new life, a life not chained and enslaved to your sin, a life not set to blindly pursue a joy that you can never attain, 
a life in which he has provided the very thing that you need for your thirst to be quenched. Communion is a reminder of the unity that we find in Christ, of the gospel being proclaimed of the work of Jesus. Paul says, what you have done is you've taken this important practice, you've taken this crucial gospel moment in your service, and you've turned it into a party. You've turned it into to an act of showmanship that completely negates the blessing that this meal was supposed to be. The worship of God, the celebration of communion, it's supposed to be a blessing, but it's a really serious thing too. Look at 27. Says whoever eats, he says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, so eat of the bread and drink. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats or drinks without discerning, the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we will not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we might not be condemned along with the world. Paul warns them. He says, don't take communion in a flippant way. He says, don't take communion in a flippant way. He says, I want you to respect what communion is, and I want you to lean into the meaning of it as you, as you do this. And so he says, in this, as you come to communion, inspect your motives and inspect where your brain is as you come before the table to partake in communion. He's asking them to focus on what they're doing. Saying, as you take communion, as you come together, when you eat and drink these things in an unworthy manner, what made it unworthy is that they completely had detracted from the meaning of what the meal was supposed to be. So, so as you come together, as you think of these things, focus on this. Focus on the body and the blood of Christ that were shed for you. Let a person examine himself to make sure that he or she comes to the table understanding the meaning of this meal. That's why every week, uh, and sometimes I forget, but I try and make sure that I say this every week, that, that, that when we come to do communion, if you're here and you're not sure where you're at with Jesus, number one, I'm super thankful you're here. I hope that you find this to be a safe space to explore who God is, to learn about and to hear about what we believe as Christians. But when we take communion, I don't want you to just do it and go through the motions. Like I don't want you to do it and just have it be a thing like, well, I guess this is like where we get a snack now. And just have this be a flippant, goofy thing that has no meaning for you. I don't want you to think about it. And, and if that's not where you're at, then, then no big deal. Just let it pass by. Nobody's going to think anything of it. This meal has significance. And if you're a believer and you can't in that moment take time to focus on the sacrifice of Jesus, you can't in that moment take time to think about what Christ has done for you, then maybe you skip it for the week. Because what Paul says is to take it flippantly, to not act like this is an important thing, to not have a focus on the gospel in this moment. He says it's sin. He says if you eat and drink of this, if you eat about it, if you think about it, without focusing on the body of Christ, without thinking about this self, by, by perverting it and making it something else, he says in that, he says the Corinthians, because of what they were doing, because of their sin in this area, Paul says that is why there's rampant weakness, illness, and even death in your community. Now, now, I don't know exactly what the implication of this is. I don't know if he's saying this is just a direct implication of what they were doing, of gorging themselves, of drinking so heavily in these circumstances and saying, hey, the way that you're partaking this is bringing death and sickness on you. I don't know if he's saying, hey, this is causing some spiritual judgment on you. It seems like there's at least a piece of both in here. 
But he says, God, God is not unaware of our sin in these ways. And he says, so, so be careful. Now, this is not a passage saying you can't come to the table if you have any sin in your life. You all have sin in your life, right? This is not a passage saying that you must come to the table perfect. I mean, that would detract from the meaning even more. The communion is a representation of how much we needed God's sacrifice to make us clean. Communion is a representation of what God has done on our behalf, that we would even be able to step into the presence of God we could not do if we were not part of the body of Christ. But this is a passage saying, judge where you're at and and whether or not you can approach this and focus on the meaning of it. And so there may be times and circumstances in your life where you think, you know, I I shouldn't do this right now. I should let this go by because I can't take this seriously right now. And I don't know, and I'm not going to put on you what might convict you in that direction. There are times in the local church also where we see uh, that the local church leaders are told to, to, to uh, force someone to abstain from this meal because of their flagrant, unrepentant sin. Because this meal is supposed to be a, a blessing. You know, I remember, like, as I thought about this, I thought, like, the goal here that Paul wants, he just doesn't want this to just become a, a route thing, right? He doesn't want this to just become a thing that's just like, oh, yeah, we do this every week, no big deal. I remember sometimes, like, even, even praying before meals as a kid could become this way. He's like, oh, God, thanks for this food, and we'll move on, we'll eat, right? The, that prayer, if, if we weren't careful, could become something that was just a part of our rhythm and routine. It was ceremony, but it had no meaning to us. We don't want communion to be that for us. We don't, we don't want this to just be a routine. We don't want this to just become something flippant that doesn't matter. As we gather each week and we celebrate communion together, let's commit as a church that we are going to focus on the meaning of it. That, that when we take that bread each week, when we hold that bread, like when the elements come around, you have that moment where, where you've gotten yours and someone else hasn't yours yet. That's, that's one of the reasons that, that we, we pass communion here is that we want to take it together most of the time. And throughout the year, we'll do some occasions where we'll come forward and take it individually in that way. Um, we think it's nice to change things up a little bit, but, but kind of our standard practice is that we take it and hold it because it's the symbol of the one bread that we partake of all together at the same time. And this passage has a lot to do with that. That this is one bread, this is one body, this is one church, and we consume this together. So it, it, as you take this and you hold it and you have that moment, think about its meaning. Don't just let your mind drift, but spend a moment and think about how you have been knit together in the body of Christ. You know, when the cup comes by, think about the sacrifice of Christ. Think about how the Bible talks of the blood of Jesus covering over our sin. Think about this as the sign of the new covenant that says when God looks at you, that he's pleased with you because he sees you like Jesus. That Jesus' righteousness has been imputed to you. That you now have standing before God as a child of God. Think about those things. Dwell on those things. Because Paul says when you come together, this is supposed to be amazing. So he closes this in 33 with a few last instructions. He says, so then my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, just let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things, I'll give you instructions when I come. Paul says, think about the way that you go about this meal. If hunger is an issue and you need to come to the meal so you don't come to it as a feast, just eat something at home first, right? Oh, gosh. Pre-game it a little, right? Like, that's a joke that I wanted to say. But with the food, okay? That's what he's saying, okay? 
to come before it. He said, come prepared for this meal. Like when you come each week, you know that you're going to celebrate communion with one another. So come, ready to focus on the bread, ready to focus on the cup with minds that are ready to worship. Paul gives them these final instructions in this proper way so that they can avoid their sin. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to pray, and then we're going to celebrate this meal together. And so uh, our, our, our hospitality team will come forward, they'll pass this out, we'll take it, we'll hold it, we'll consume it with one another. And just take this moment, in particular this week, as we focused on this passage uh, to pray together. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually ask that, like, instead of even coming up now for our band members, hey, band, just stay out there. Like, we'll, we'll have an awkward silence. It'll be okay. We'll, we'll deal with that transition that we might be able to just all take communion together in this way, okay? So I'm going to pray, and then we'll pass the elements. God, thank you that you have provided for us in this way. God, that, that we here at River City, we are one church, um, but we are one church who is a part of a global church, of a timeless uh, lineage of believers. God, from your people in Israel who trusted in Jesus, even though they didn't know his name yet, that they knew that your covenant provision would come. God, to now where we recognize the sacrifice of Christ and we get to have this blessing of this communion meal to remind us of what you've done for us. God, help us to not take this uh, in a flippant way. God, help our church to never be a church that is uh, rife with division. God, where we are marked uh, by our, our cliques and the haves and the have-nots. God, would we not be marked by our preferences of what we like or love, by the teams that we follow or, or the hobbies that we enjoy, the stage of life that we are in? God, would you make us a church where we have uh, folks who are old, who, who are close friends with someone who's in college? God, will we see ourselves as a family? When we see kids passing us in this hallway, God, we see them as a part of our family and our own. God, would you make us look different racially? Would you bring people of all different backgrounds and cultures to our church? God, would you make it difficult for us to sort through what it looks like to find an identity because we have so many cultures represented here? God, bring us those who have and bring us those who have none. And God, let us give preference to no one. God, as we celebrate this meal now, remind us of the unity that we find in Christ, his body and blood sacrifice for us. In your name we pray. Amen.